0: there's some things I forgot to tell you guys and they're really important number one he hates bright lights we know that but you got to keep him out of the sunlight sunlight will kill him number two keep him away from water don't give him any water to drink and whatever you do don't give him a bath and probably the most important thing don't ever feed him after midnight (laughs) Welcome to Now Playing's Gremlins Retrospective Series. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Hunters of them. Hosted by Jacob, Stewart, and Arnie. Leave you people alone for five minutes, and what do I find when I get back? It's a chaos. This podcast will give you another reason to hate Christmas. Detailed plot spoilers and mild language and content. I warned you, but you didn't listen, and you see what happened. Listener discretion is advised. Come on, we're talking cable. Okay, Mac, let's take it from the top.
1: Today, we're discussing Gremlins, starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, Hoyt Axton, Corey Feldman, Howie Mandel, directed by Joe Dante. Friends, let me introduce myself. Arnie Carvalho is my name. I'm a podcaster.
2: Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the host who doesn't mind getting wet. No, you were a swimmer, right? Something like that, yes. This is PG, right? (laughs) All this carnage, it's PG, so yes, it's swimming I'm into.
3: Oh, but it should have been PG-13. We'll talk about it.
1: Absolutely. So, to our listeners, Merry Christmas! Every year we try to do something a little holiday-themed. Last year, Silent Night, Deadly Night.
2: This year, it's Gremlins. My favorite Christmas movie after Die Hard, actually.
3: (laughs) I can see you don't go for the traditional route. (laughs)
2: No.
3: (laughs) I'm so
1: excited. Gremlins is one of those movies that I have such a fond memory of from childhood. I really think, and we've talked about this on the show before, but 1984. What a year for movies, wasn't it? I mean, that year we got Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop, Gremlins, Indiana Jones, Karate Kid, which we've done Star Trek three. I mean, so many movies came out in 84 that I just absolutely love. Gremlins was one of them. I had the talking gizmo doll. I had the trading cards. I had the gizmo and the Gremlins book and record album that came from I think it was Hardee's.
3: It was Hardee's, which I don't even know if people know what a Hardee's is anymore, but yeah. (laughs) We still have them here in the Midwest. You
1: Westerners call them Carl's Jr.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like you, Arnie. When this came out, seven years old, you know, we talk about Star Wars collecting or whatnot. I remember I went through a Gremlins phase that summer hardcore, I could not get my hands on enough toys, coloring books. I remember going on summer vacation and just having Gremlins activity book after activity book, connecting the dots, making Gizmo and Stripe, coloring them in. Huge fan when this came out, and and I think I am the fan here. Both of these films, as we get into them, are films I have revisited multiple times throughout the years.
3: Okay, and I'm Scrooge, I guess, because (laughs) Gremlins is a seminal Childhood movie experience, but not maybe in the way that you guys are describing it. 1984, yes, Steven Spielberg is my idol. There is nobody more important to me working in films after the trifecta of Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. and Poltergeist. The man could do no wrong. And it is the first example I can think of of buying into something long before I knew what it was. Like all of you, I bought the merchandise. I bought Gremlins nine different ways. I mean, I even got the candy bar that said, don't eat it after midnight. And I remember staying up in an (laughs) act of defiance and being like, oh, yeah, here goes. I mean, I was into it. Couldn't you have woken up the next morning and had the same effect? <laughs> we'll talk about the rules, but my point was, was that I had experienced Gremlins before I saw it. You know, 1984 was a busy summer for me. I didn't actually get to see this movie. It came out in early June. I didn't get to see it until I was going back to school at the end of August. I was stunned that it was not the experience I thought that I had bought into. I believed because of the ad campaign, because of Poltergeist, because of Spielberg, what I was going to see was the most terrifying film of all time. That it would be evil monsters ripping up townspeople, that there would be lots of blood, that I was finally going to get an R-rated experience that I could have in the movie theaters. It's not that, and let me just say that my interest in Gremlins immediately evaporated upon seeing it. I was crushed, and I do think I look back. I think that's why I'm not a collector in my adult life. I bought everything Gremlins, and then I just wanted nothing of it. So it cured me of that. But this will be the first time I have seen Gremlins since 1984.
2: It's funny, Stuart. We've all talked about, you know, I'm usually the newbie when it comes to horror, and I I have a very particular taste with horror. I look at 1984. Like you said, Arnie, Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out the same year, two of my favorite films. I think that really shapes the kind of horror I've been into, where it's more satirical and more humorous. And I wasn't, especially at seven, wasn't expecting a slasher film, but (laughs) I have noticed the effects that this film has had on me throughout the years in forming my taste in horror films.
1: And for me, Stuart, I was there with you. You got me into this film. I was not worshipping Spielberg until after 1984. I didn't see Raiders until it came out on video. I still haven't seen 1941. Nothing I hear tells me I should. But it was the summer of 84 when he started producing. And then I started catching up to the other stuff that I really got into Spielberg and You, before this movie had come out, were all into it. You were reading the novelization, I remember. Mm,
3: That's what changed my perspective. The book, I haven't gone back to read it, and no, I'm not going to, Books and Nachos fans, (laughs) but it was much harder. I believe the original concept, the original script that the book was based on was more serious in tone, and there were deaths. I do remember several townspeople getting a bloody end.
2: When this was first being shopped around, Chris Columbus wrote the script. Spielberg really wanted to do this low-budget, hard horror film. Billy's mom was going to get decapitated by a gremlin. They are going to eat the little dog up. And they figured they couldn't do it on that budget with all these little creatures. So they had to go with a bigger budget, and Warner Brothers bought into it. But yeah, originally, it was going to be much more of a straight horror film.
1: Well, that's why you get Joe Dante, the man who made
3: Howling and Piranha. You know, I'm not that familiar with Joe Dante. I know that I saw both of those films, but they're a blur. I don't really have any impression of him. Certainly, I didn't experience it as a Joe Dante movie. To me, it was Spielberg. And after Gremlins came out, I was always very aware of when Spielberg directed it or when Spielberg just put his Amblin stamp on it and somebody else made it.
1: Joe Dante is kind of a strange one because I didn't realize this, but when I looked him up on IMDb, I've seen almost every movie he's ever done. Everything between Piranha and Looney Tunes I've seen, including Small Soldiers, Gremlins 2, The Burbs, Inner Space, Explorers, Matinee... I would not associate all these films with the same director, but I looked it up, and I guess I'm a Joe Dante fan, or at least he makes movies I'm always interested in, even if I don't necessarily like them.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot of these films. Inner Space, I mean, remember liking them as a kid. I've never gone back to them. This is his only film that I'd bother going back to. I don't know how I'd feel about those other ones watching them now.
1: I've gone back to Inner Space I've seen some of them, you know, fairly recently for the first time. I've gone back to the burbs repeatedly, but Gremlins is one that I don't go back to. I'm coming into this as kind of the revisiting perspective. I mean, I've seen this movie. I saw it a lot as a kid. I've seen Gremlins 2 only twice and once in theaters, once on video. But really, I'm anxious to return to see if these movies live up to my memory because it's been a long time.
3: And I'm just here hoping that I'm going to appreciate it more as a comedy than I could as a 10-year-old. Yes, the crazy 10-year-old warped kid that I was back then wanted blood and guts. I know I'm not going to get that now, but will this be like Ghostbusters? Will it be a successful fusion of comedy and horror? Could I appreciate it now for the movie it is rather than the phenomenon that it wasn't to me so that's what i'm hoping here
1: coincidentally it opened the exact same day as ghostbusters i didn't remember that because i was way more into ghostbusters
3: well i ain't afraid of no mogwai
1: arnie give him a plot in the sleepy small backlot of kingston falls not much goes on the locals try to make ends meet lest their home be taken by real estate baron mrs deagle and teenage billy supports his family working at the bank and crushing on coworker Kate. But all that changes when Billy's dad returns from a trip to Chinatown with Billy's unusual Christmas gift. A small furry creature named Gizmo. Gizmo is a Mogwai, and that comes with it three rules. Don't get it wet, don't feed it after midnight, and don't expose it to bright light. The first rule is broken when Billy's friend accidentally spills some water on Gizmo and five more Mogwai are spawned. But these five are bad kids who sabotage Billy's clock to trick him into breaking the second rule feeding them after midnight. This nocturnal snacking causes the Mogwai to metamorphosis into gremlins, green creatures with a penchant for mayhem. They run amok across the town, killing several residents. Billy and Gizmo rescue Kate from the gremlins at a bar, and with their waitress gone, the gremlins congregate at a movie theater to watch Snow White. Billy and Kate kill the gremlins by blowing up the building, but lead gremlin Stripe escape the explosion, looking for noms across the street at a department store. Billy gives chase, but soon is the prey to a series of traps set by Stripe, but Gizmo opens the window shade, saving the day as the third rule is broken and the sunlight melts the rascally gremlin. In the aftermath, the old man who was Gizmo's previous owner and from whom Gizmo was stolen arrives to repossess the furry creature, telling Billy, someday you may be ready. For the responsibility of Mogwai ownership, the old man walks off into the night as credits roll.
3: Well, you know, coming back to Gremlins, there was a lot about it that I remembered. They were frozen images in my mind from the trading cards. And one of them was Hoyt Axton. Someone that I never would have known as a child, but because he was on a Gremlins card, I learned all of these details about him writing songs for Elvis and for Three Dog Night. Is this Hoyt Axton's claim to fame here that he's now a movie star walking up to Chinatown? Who's Hoyt Axton? <laughs> Rand Peltzer. <laughs> Of course. I'm aware that the
1: credits tell me Hoyt Axton (laughs) plays Rand Peltzer. But now that you're talking about Hoyt Axton like I should know him outside of Gremlins, I repeat, who's Hoyt (laughs) Axton?
2: You know, it doesn't surprise me that you said he was a songwriter.
3: Yes. He's a folk country artist. He wrote some
2: famous tunes. Yeah, because Joe Dante and the producer, when they were talking about this opening scene in Chinatown, it, in the original cut, the original cut of this film was two hours and 40 minutes. And there was a lot of Chinatown stuff really setting it up. And then they're like, we got to cut all this. Hey, regard. Hoyt Axton, he's got this beautiful voice. Let's have him just narrate the opening and cut to the chase. So I get that he was someone that I guess was known for his voice. Have no idea who he is. Didn't that seven? Don't now.
3: Yeah, I do think that one thing I'm learning about Joe Dante when I rewatch Gremlins here is that he's got a real fix for all of the characters from his youth. I feel like this movie is littered with old movies and old music. Uh, Later, a DJ is going to play a part in here. I don't know who Hoyt Axton was before this, but I'm sure he was one of Joe Dante's favorite singers. And thus, he gets a pivotal starring role here as an inventor coming to either sell his wares or get a Christmas gift or both as he arrives at Chinatown. He is
1: the worst dad ever, right? I mean, other than perhaps abusive, drunken absentee fathers. I mean, he is pretty absentee. They mention that Billy has to work to support his family because Father the Inventor is off in Chinatown trying to sell the bathroom buddy, which I'm actually surprised doesn't exist yet. I'm looking at that like, I could use that in travel. I don't quite know why I need a dental mirror, but a toothbrush and scissors and fingernail
3: clippers and a razor all in one
2: They do need to make it a little bit smaller to fit into that three-ounce bag that the airlines require.
3: Something about it just doesn't seem sanitary. Like, (laughs) I don't know. It seems like a a good Petri dish, ultimately, with all those germs on there. You'd have to wash it really good. But the fact that he's gone from home for most of this movie, this is yet another
1: Spielberg film with a missing parent, only he's off at an inventor's convention
2: (laughs) on Christmas Eve! (laughs)
3: Yeah, it's pretty bad. Pretty bad choice. Yeah, I love you guys, but I've got to try to sell this crap to Robbie the Robot. I don't get it. It's a character that doesn't make sense, and honestly, I think they could have written him out. Could have been a family without a father, except that Joe Dante wanted his idol, Hoyt Axton, to be a part of this. But you could have written this character out. I mean, you could have gotten the Mogwai a different way. It didn't have to go this Chinatown brought you home to apologize for being away so much kind of deal.
1: And when I was Nine when this came out, and when I was watching it again on videotape, these opening scenes in Chinatown, I always forgot about them. They always felt like they were part of some other movie. They did not feel like Gremlins to me. For me, Gremlins takes place in Kingston Falls, so when you go off to Chinatown and have this deep-voiced actor who's not in most of the rest of the movie... It really doesn't seem to mesh with the rest.
2: For me, it really does work. And if I was writing papers about this film in college, I didn't. But if I was, you know, I didn't see this as a child. But as I got older, this is a satire to me about what the West does to other cultures. You know, you think of Chinatown. How many Chinatowns are there in the U.S.? San Francisco, L.A., New York. I'm sure there's some other ones. And they're not really culturally china it's kind of this metamorphosis of what the west has turned china into you know fortune cookies you can't get them in china it's an american invention and so to me as we go throughout this film we'll see you know the cute fuzzy thing turning into something ugly we'll see this town turn into something ugly this is a satire to me at least of what the west does to other cultures and so i like that we have this chinatown that it's kind of a signifier of what's going to happen with these gremlins
3: i like the slow build-up that's what i think is significant here is that it takes a good 20 minutes to get a gander at what the mogwai is and if you hadn't run out to the toy store and bought nine different dolls of it you would not know walking into the movie theater in 1984 what you were about to see the poster showed you eyes peeking out of a box With some furry paws coming out, maybe it was a monster, maybe it was E.T., hard to say. But they did a very good job of concealing what this creature is. So what you're learning here in Chinatown is just the noises that it makes. It likes to sing, it kind of sounds like R2-D2, it's building a mystery. It's E.T., right? I mean, isn't this
1: the E.T. marketing campaign all over again? I know that audiences today could not fathom of a movie where you didn't see the creature in every trailer and every poster beforehand. But in the 80s, there was a mystery in some movies. You didn't know what the alien in E.T. was going to look like before you went to the theater. You did not know what a gremlin was or a mogwai was until you paid your ticket price.
2: E.T. is spot on. I mean, people were upset by this film because they thought it was going to be another E.T. It turns into something very different.
1: Yeah, indeed. But with Spielberg's name and this marketing campaign... Yeah, the similarities are evident. There's even an E.T. joke later in the film we'll get to. But this opening, I still like it. I mean, I say it feels out of place because it's lit differently. It's shot differently. It has none of our cast in it. It feels so totally different. But I do like the mystery with which the Mogwai is introduced. I like how it's gotten in a backroom deal. This does feel like a cautionary campfire tale. It's not for sale, but he makes an illicit back alley deal with the boy who needs the money and steals the mogwai, so he knows he's doing something wrong. I mean, isn't this like a monkey's paw kind of thing?
3: Yeah, sure, I could see that. It could have been played as a horror movie setup. You're getting something you thought you want that you were told was forbidden. Yeah, I mean, it could be like that, except that, no, I mean, ultimately, they are getting E.T. with fur. I mean, this thing <laughs> is really cute once he finally gets it home.
2: Yeah, but I think it's spot on when, when you are talking about these folklores, these monkey paws. Let's talk about the rules, because we find out about the rules right away. We're told them repeatedly, in fact. Yes. yes. I mean, this is something... I, it's a big joke now, and I think next week, even the filmmakers are going to mock these rules. But today, everyone knows the joke about these rules. What time zone does it have to be midnight in? But this was something the producers were actually worried about, that people would walk out. They introduced these rules so early, because they're like, if we can get them in there early, people will buy into it. But they knew there was a problem with these rules.
1: Yes, the rules... Let's go through the problems with the rules. Let's go ahead and point out what I'm sure people have been pointing out for 30 years. Yes, after we hit New Year's, it's this movie's 30th anniversary. So 30 years
2: of plot holes. One, don't get them wet. He looks so clean. The problem is, most of this film's gonna take place in the snow! So maybe it has to be in liquid form? I don't know if snow is liquid form or not, but. Snow is the solid
1: form, but once you walk inside with snowy feet, that snow instantly melts into puddles on hardwood floors. I guess they don't have sweat glands either. Or saliva? <laughs> <laughs> Second. No bright lights, and especially no sunlight. Okay, that one I'll kind of go with. Nocturnal creature. He doesn't seem to keep night hours, but okay. And then the third, don't feed them
3: after midnight. Time being a Western conception, I'm kind of tapping into what you were saying, Jacob, here. I mean, this is the worst one, obviously. What is the time frame that he can begin to eat again? Is it just the midnight hour, you know? (laughs) There's no reason from a Darwinian standpoint that a creature like this should be able to be alive on this planet. It's just not feasible.
2: Maybe that's why there's just this one. That we know of.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's an endangered species, if not
1: extinct, at this point. Oh, I disagree. You get this thing wet, and it instantly has asexual reproduction. I'm surprised this thing isn't like the Tribbles from the old 60s Star Trek episodes, and we live in nothing but a world of Mogwai, where everywhere you step, you're stepping on Mogwai, because one rainstorm...
3: Yeah, every morning they melt, Arnie. I mean, yeah, sure. By night, the forest is covered in them. By morning, you're like, uh, it's dew under your shoe. I guess that's why there's
1: no Mogwai fur coats. You wear it out one time and you're wearing a (laughs) puddle.
2: You're naked. You know, I think this goes to what, at least I've always said, You set up your rules in the beginning, I'll concede to them, and I'll go with it. But the thing is, everyone knows these are goofy rules. Even the filmmakers knew they were goofy. I think that's part of this film's charm, and as we get into it, you know, Stuart, what 10-year-old you might have not liked is how the tone shifts throughout this film. I think that's what ultimately has made this such a classic that people have held on to, is because it does get so wacky, and these rules are just that first instance of it.
3: Yeah, oddly enough, 10-year-old totally accepted these rules. That's what this creature was fine no problem you've established how things are going to go wrong and i think that's important to do
1: yeah but by age 11 on the playground we were having this conversation
3: (laughs) by the video release we were like wait when can you eat Oh, I was having this conversation the second the movie ended, but (laughs) going into it, my point is I completely accepted the world that was being presented because I was going to get a horror movie. I'm going
1: with it. I'll tell you what makes me go with it more as an adult, and I'm a sucker for this type of thing, but... My god, the creature design on Gizmo is absolutely phenomenal, isn't he? I mean, he's a mixture of Ewok and teddy bear and chihuahua with those big ears and those big eyes. He's an incredibly cute little obvious puppet. I had a Gizmo doll when I was 9. I'm not ashamed to say it. I would own one today. That thing is just adorable with its little ooh, ooh, ooh song. You take that puppet design and Howie Mandel, and you've got box office gold.
2: Well, you're half right. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, that's thanks to Spielberg originally, Gizmo was supposed to turn into Stripe, and it was going to be Billy versus Gizmo throughout the rest of the film. There was no more cute, furry creature, and Spielberg, as executive producer, is like, ah, there's some potential. I'm sure he was thinking marketing. I don't know if he said that word, but he insisted that Gizmo stay in the picture.
1: I don't know that it would be marketing. Spielberg has a knack for audience-pleasing storytelling, and depending on if this was pre- or post E.T. Dolls and E.T. Atari games, maybe... He saw extra money in it, but I mean, it's not like we were all buying plushies of The Beast from Poltergeist.
3: Right, exactly. I do think that, yeah, he had learned from E.T. how to tap into this. It's written into the character, Rand Peltzer. The salesman ultimately sees this as maybe his next invention. His ultimate gift to the world is the Peltzer pet. He sees the marketability of this creature as well. I mean, the shocker is it would actually take another decade for someone to actually make them. But eventually we did get the Furby, and it was a Christmas (laughs) hit.
2: There was a Gizmo version. And there was a lawsuit. There was a lawsuit?
3: Yeah. I can believe it. The similarities are undeniable. But I'm going to
1: take a little bit of a risk and say I think Gizmos the most interesting character in this film, because he goes to the most milquetoast character in cinematic history, <laughs> Billy. This character has about as much depth as the background matte painting of Keystone Falls.
3: Yeah, well, Zach Galligan doesn't have a huge career to talk about beyond this movie, and I think there's a reason for that. I agree. Unlike Henry Thomas, who I was sure was going to be the biggest star of my generation, <laughs> I never thought again about Zach Galligan, and I saw Waxwork, but I never even thought about him again.
2: Yeah, he seemed the most excited to be called back to do the commentaries 22 years later for these DVDs.
3: <laughs>
1: I'll tell you, last Halloween... I saw Hatchet 3 for the first time and didn't know he was in it till the end credits. So, yeah. But I'm not going to blame the actor entirely for this. It was,
2: what, his first movie role or... Yeah, it was his first major one, at least. He might have done some TV or something before, but... Yeah, his first major movie. I mean, doing a Spielberg production, that's got to be intimidating to be your first big role.
1: But it's not like he's given a whole lot to work with here. I mean, he's... A teenager with a full-time job at a bank? I mean, he's basically a second-rate George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life.
3: Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life is a huge influence on this town, on this character, why it's set around a bank. I didn't remember this at all. My feeling was that he was in high school because I remembered he was friends with Corey Feldman and that he would go to a science teacher. It's kind of weird, huh, that he's actually a grown-up living at home. He doesn't feel that way to me.
2: Yeah, they do call him a teenager, so I figured 18, maybe just graduated. The role was originally made for a 13-year-old, which explains why he would be friends with Corey. Okay, yeah, that is a strange commingling there.
3: But at the same time, he's hanging out at a bar later. I mean...
2: 18 was the drinking age in 84. <laughs> what? It differed state to state, actually.
1: But yes, there were states in the 80s that had a drinking age of 18. I remember a Family Ties episode all about Alex driving to another state where he could drink legally. <laughs>
3: I don't remember that one, but, uh, you know, going younger seems to be the one that makes more sense. I just associate most Spielberg fantasy films from the 80s as being about coming of age, and the idea that he's kind of already done that here, it's strange. I find it also strange, and I wonder
1: if it's an accidental line now that you're saying this, Jacob, in the script, because I would really take Billy to be in his 20s. I mean, he's working full-time... He is still living at home, but hey, I'm from Generation X. The 20-somethings still lived at home after their job. You had to take some time to get on your feet. He's supporting his family, it said. If it wasn't for the line that Randall says where he goes, I need a gift for my teenage son, I'd think Billy's in his 20s for sure which does make his relationship with Corey Feldman a little bit weirder. But hey, it's Corey Feldman. Doesn't he constantly hang around adults when he was that age? Michael Jackson?
3: I don't know. You might have done yourself a favor by casting this as Steve Gutenberg instead. I feel like the Minch was a colorful character. Ferris Bueller, I feel like, yeah, it could have been lots of different people here. That they went with Galligan was a real mistake for this movie because he's a huge hole. We don't ever care about
2: Billy. Ever. Yeah, it's funny. They dropped this This whole line there's a lot of things that get dropped in this film this whole intro they're really setting up this town we're meeting so many different characters and this mrs deagle who's trying to kick everyone out of their homes but billy there's this kind of b plot that goes away pretty quickly that he was a comic book artist and he was working on this comic called troll warrior this is all cut out of the film but he was supposed to throughout the film become more and more like this conan-esque character that he would draw in these comics and so I think originally they were going to do some kind of development with them but I think once they realized Gizmo is the real star of this film, yeah, they really pushed his character to the background.
3: You could see that too with Judge Reinhold you know he has a junior executive boss over him who has only got a year or two in age on him and he is basically saying in his one memorable scene you need to toughen up, you need to be like me, you can't be a pushover so yeah, I think that this is going to be a character arc, but honestly, that concept and Judge Reinhold quickly disappear from this movie. I'll tell you what I remember about
1: Judge Reinhold. First of all, great year for 84 with Judge Reinhold. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop also. I'd forgotten he was in this movie till watching it for this viewing, but then I had a flashback. I watched this movie on, I think it was ABC, some network broadcast. And remember, as we've talked about with some other shows like Star Trek 2 how they'd insert extra scenes for that. There was an extra Judge Reinhold scene that I saw as a kid that freaked me out, and I dug it up. It's on the Blu-ray of Judge Reinhold having gone insane and locked himself in the bank vault.
2: Yes, during the Gremlins attack. We'll talk about that scene. It had to get cut because Dante wanted to keep another infamous scene in this film. But yeah, there was a character arc or at least a resolution to what happened to him, because you really feel like Mrs. Deagle, this bake manager, they're setting up all the kills, right? Isn't that how horror works? You set up who the awful people are so you could cheer when they get killed later on. And they all kind of, except for Mrs. Deagle, they all kind of just vanish. We never find out what happens to them.
3: And Deagle, I mean, this is a complete grafting of Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, this is Gulch all over. I'll get your little dog.
1: You say that, and I did get Wizard of Oz with that dog line, But again,
3: I'm back to It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Potter. I think it's both. I think it's a mashup. And again, I think Joe Dante loves taking things that he loved as a kid, old movies, old archetypes, and reworking them. I do feel like this movie is just littered with films that he grew up with. But you're right, Jacob, these people are clearly, yes, the setups to the kills. We know who the bad people are, and by proxy, we are to like Billy because he's victimized by them. Not because he's really doing anything interesting, but because he's got to deal with them. We also know, not because of what we're seeing, but that Phoebe Cates is going to be the love interest in that blouse.
2: Uh, it maybe because of something we saw. I didn't see it at seven, but I definitely saw something from her later.
3: Yeah, well, admittedly, and this is somewhat of a Fast Times at Ridgemont High reunion with Judge Reinhold and Phoebe Cates in the cast. I didn't remember it that way, but my God, that blue blouse she's wearing. (laughs) I mean, even in the 80s, that would have been frowned upon. That is something on the cover of a butter jar. I mean, that (laughs) is not something you wear to the bank. It is very,
1: very dowdy. I will agree with that. But you know what? She's kind of cute in a totally bland way. (laughs) I do love her in Fast Times. I don't know if she's worked all that much. I've seen her in other stuff, including, not my proudest movie reference on Now Playing, Drop Dead Fred. (laughs) Oh. But I get that they kind of have this sweet little romance, Unspoken. But she really doesn't do much more with the part either. You say you see why Galligan didn't work. I see why Phoebe Cates didn't set the world aflame either. Right. With that blouse and his monobrow, these are not two people we want to see in love. But it makes me believe in the Midwest, not Hollywood. <laughs> but I think that the... The story moves along pretty quickly because it's not too long before a Corey Feldman is clumsily spilling a glass of water on Gizmo.
3: It's about 25 minutes. It does take a little bit of a ways. If you've been anxious to see monsters, at this point in the movie, you would have settled down into the slower pace of things. You would have accepted the fact that we are going to have E.T. first before we're going to have Poltergeist.
2: I haven't felt a pacing issue. I don't mind getting to know this town. Again, if I'm thinking this is a horror film, I want to get to know the town. I want to get to know who's going to get slashed and who's not. So I think the pacing's fine. It's working for me. I guess if you just got to see your gizmo, you might think it's going a little slow.
1: I like the pacing of this for a different reason, Jacob. I think you're right about wanting to know the town, but not for slasher victims, but because... Once again, we're in a Spielberg film. And like I talked about with Jaws and Poltergeist here, it's not quite as deft. You can tell maybe Spielberg wasn't on the set as much as he was on Poltergeist. But it definitely has that Spielbergian quality. The scene that really set it off for me is when the sheriff is going to try to get a free tree out of the Christmas tree salesman. And there's another guy there telling the sheriff, well, I paid for mine, Frank. It just makes me believe in the authenticity of this town and these people. And the way it's set up with Miss Deagle and the foreclosure she's doing and the really pathetic scene of a little girl telling her mom, mom, I'm hungry. I mean, it really is a movie that I could see completely playing before Gremlins. It sets me up that this movie could be
3: anything. Before it goes scary, you know how it. You really know it's a Spielberg movie. World War II references. The man couldn't make a film without dropping some homage, either obscure or overt, to World War II. You know, in Jaws, it was the story about the ship that sank, and here we get a World War II vet who's talking about how every foreign product is a host for gremlins. He's the one that actually gives us the definition for the title.
2: Yes, the xenophobic Mr. Futterman. But here's the thing, Stuart. Maybe you don't know this. Gremlins, they were a real like, folklore thing from World War II. British air pilots, whenever something would go wrong with their planes, they said it's the Gremlins, those German Gremlins that have got in here and messed with it.
3: Oh, I definitely knew. I had seen Twilight Zone the movie the
2: previous summer, yes. Joe Dante also worked on that.
3: Yeah, not at that episode, but
1: yes. When this movie came out, I knew Gremlins from Bugs Bunny cartoons, where, yes, in that World War II era, he was fighting them on airplanes.
2: Yeah, I mean, Raoul Dahl, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and James and the Giant Peach, he was commissioned by Disney to write a book called Gremlins, and it was supposed to be an animated feature. It made it into those Looney Tunes. They kept trying to stick that Looney Tunes, that episode, showing the Gremlins into this and the second movie. It got cut out of both of them, though.
3: Huh. I didn't know that detail, but you know what? I just take it to be that at the time, I don't think I really knew what the word gremlin meant. I think I thought it was a car, but I didn't know what a poltergeist was until I saw the movie. I liked the idea of finding out a mystery. I liked the idea that this movie was going to teach me something about, yeah, folklore here. So, you know, I, as a kid, just responded to the idea that, oh, the gremlins are going to pop out of the toaster. The gremlins are going to do all of that. It doesn't really go that way. Instead, the gremlins are coming from the cute thing. And they are also cute. I mean,
1: when they form, they look like five more gizmos. You can see why the father thought of the Peltzer pet. I mean, who wouldn't want one of these? And if all it takes is throwing it in the bathtub, yeah,
2: it does look like it'll hurt poor Giz. The problem is with the Peltzer pet, the record industry thinks it's a nightmare with MP3s. Well, why would you ever buy one of these from the store? You just find your friend who has one and drop some water on it. (laughs) But these five
1: are evil, and this leads me to a conundrum. You know, when I start thinking about things for a now-playing discussion, as a kid watching this movie, I'm like, okay, these five are evil. But now I'm like, why are all Mogwai evil, but Gizmo? Is it that Gizmo is like the only natural-born Mogwai, and any that are created through asexual reproduction are evil? Is it that it's a copy of a copy and so Gizmo is the last generation of good Mogwai and then you get bad ones? Is Gizmo very old, and he's had a chance to mature, and these are baby mogwai?
2: I'm telling you, it's all about just like we had Mr. Wing, the old man. He doesn't want to sell the mogwai. He knows it takes a lot of responsibility. His grandson is the one who sneaks it out of the store and sells it. It's a generational thing. The West gets involved. You start getting removed from your culture and start losing touch with it, and it starts getting perverted and changing.
3: Now, my question then, Jacob, would be, is if Mr. Wing had to deal with five new mogwai, would he train them to be better behaved and they would grow up to be like Gizmo? Or is it that, what Arnie's still implying, that there are pure mogwai, but if you break the rules, out of that rule-breaking comes the mischievous mogwai.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some Gremlins EU where there's 16 more rules where they tell you how to grow (laughs) a good mogwai.
3: (laughs) I needed a whole book. You know, actually, now that we mentioned. This I did have a reading on this story that I hadn't had before. It'd call me crazy, but you know, this being said at Christmas, I'm like, this doesn't really feel like a Christmas story. Or at least not thematically. Here, I actually got a sense. More of like, this was more like a metaphor for Judaism, that the characters here, Peltzer, Futterman, these are Jewish surnames, and it's sort of a town of Americanized Jewish culture. Suddenly they're presented with something that has all of these complicated rules, dietary rules at that. I feel like it is about Jewish culture that has been removed from its traditions. You know, they're lackadaisical about following the rules, and they bring the specter of World War II upon them. They bring a German monster upon them. I don't know. It was sort of a funny reading I had. Is Chris Columbus Jewish? I don't think so. But Spielberg, obviously, I do get the sense that people took a lot of cues from Spielberg. This, in many ways, feels like a Spielberg childhood. Immediately, this metaphor gets kind of complicated when you consider it all comes from an Asian, but... (laughs) (laughs) Look at Mr. Wing at the end. I mean, he's got the hat and the black coat and the beard and all of that. You could squint and you might think he's a (laughs) rabbi. I don't know. I might be totally crazy here but i definitely got a sense that this was about jewish guilt as much as it was about anything in christianity and the holiday
1: you know i'm never one to say that something isn't in a movie because with deconstruction whatever you see is in a movie is in a movie that said i don't know that If this was about Judaism,
3: making it a Christmas film would necessarily be the first go-to? Well, that's my point, is that, you know, there are many Jewish people that I know that celebrate Christmas, and they tend to not to be as orthodox. That's sort of why this trouble happens, is that they're lackadaisical about the rules, that he steals it because it's a Christmas present.
2: Whatever your interpretation, I think there is something about not honoring tradition going on here, trying to... Take something that you're not ready for, something you're not prepared for, and trying to jump ahead instead of understanding the old ways.
1: And in that way, I took it just as many ways. I thought this film was kind of a decrying of Western civilization, especially from the grandfather character. I mean, he says that the white man isn't able to take the Mogwai. He's proven correct in that. At the end, when he (laughs) comes back, you teach him to watch
3: television. It's true, yes, but if he hadn't watched TV, he wouldn't have been able to save him. (laughs) We'll learn that one of these clips he's watching, the Clark Gable racing movie, it gives him the skills to save the day. I mean, I don't know, TV is both the cause and the salvation for Kingston Falls here. But the whole thing, the whole
1: speech at the end where he talks about how we aren't ready and we abuse all of nature's resources and all that. I almost took it as an anti-American film, especially when your most pro-American character is the absolutely horribly racist Mr. Futterman. He's like, ah, that's what you get for driving a foreign car. I've had this American tractor, never given me
2: a problem for 15 years. Yeah, I definitely think they're skewing Western civilization in this. Is it anti-American? I don't know, but I think they are having fun satirizing a certain image of middle America.
3: Maybe anti-consumerism. Christmas seems to be the target. And maybe Christmas is only in here because it played such a big role in It's a Wonderful Life. Which, again, is clearly a big model for this town and for this story. And also for this Phoebe Cates character. We start to get glimmers here about she doesn't like Christmas because sometimes people get suicidal. Well, that was true of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. And, well, you know, it's her backstory as well, which I'm sure we're going to get to.
1: I just absolutely love her early line. While some people are opening their presents, others are (laughs) opening their wrists.
3: It's so sensitive, I know. I It did get a laugh out of me.
1: That's like my new text message notice
3: <laughs> for the holidays. It's a way to like clear out the room. If you are at a holiday gathering and people are annoying you and Auntie is talking with her mouth full and all that, just try that one. I bet you get dead quiet, people move <laughs> out of the den. They're like, okay, we're going to go watch TV now. You will get your wish. They will get out of your way. That is a line to unsettle. It
1: almost feels like it would come with that Debbie Downer SNL sound effect.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it truly is a buzzkill for the holidays. Now, the
1: one subplot that also came back to me that I'd completely forgotten, though, is after Billy ends up with Six Mogwai, he makes a visit to the local high school science teacher. And I'm just going back to being nine and thinking every high school science teacher is nothing but a research scientist just <laughs> waiting for
3: a subject.
2: It is Kingston's Falls. I mean, maybe he's hoping he can get into community college in the next town over if he works real hard.
3: Yeah, I have actually a few friends that are scientists, and they just laugh and laugh about the way movies portray them, you know. With them, it's like, well, it's very macro-specific. I know a little bit about this kind of chemistry, but not another. But in movies, any scientist knows how to solve anything involving animal. Plant, mineral, you name it. And here, yeah, here's a guy that's teaching, maybe not even high school, he's teaching Corey Feldman about (laughs) bird hearts, and suddenly he's going to be the one to have this discovery about this animal here. It's all kinds of silly, but then again, what else do they have? What other character would begin to have answers for where the Mogwai come from? Do we need this subplot? Do we need to have something going on in parallel at the school at the same time it's happening at home? We don't need it.
1: But it certainly provides us with the scariest portion of the movie. Because right here, first of all, I think Billy's insensitive. He's got six mogwai. He's not going to take one of them and leave it with the teacher. No, Gizmo, we're going to torture you a little more.
3: Drip! (laughs) i think he also wants to show him just because i would be a little skeptical if someone brought me some rodent and said it grew in water i mean (laughs) what's strange to me is that this teacher doesn't choose to feed it after midnight i would be like oh really this is a rule what's going to happen if you break that rule let's do that on purpose not i left my ham sandwich out and now we got a cocoon
1: i'd squirt him with a squirt gun first just in case it killed him (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> have someone in reserve yeah i i get you
1: some lab rats i'm not a scientist but even i know you need your control group right
2: i do like this subplot just because it does help set up some tension in this with the phone calls like billy it's hatched then billy's got to call his mom and let her know i don't know if it's necessary but if this is a horror film This middle section here is where we're going to get it.
1: Well, there was a bonus feature on the Blu-ray where Spielberg is sitting there telling the TV audience it is not a horror film, which is perhaps why some parents were irate. But to me at nine, I wasn't Stewart. I hadn't seen Poltergeist. I wasn't really into cinematic horror, but I was intrigued by it. It was kind of horror curious. And when this stuff starts happening... Where they cocoon. First of all, I felt like the smartest freaking nine-year-old in the theater because I'd just come out of fourth grade where I'd learned about the pupil stage and cocoons (laughs) and all that. I'd done a freaking stop-motion film strip for summer school on this. I'm like, I know that! And I thought that would be knowledge that would be useful in my adult life. Like, I'd be encountering things in the pupil stage all the time. But when these eggs show up and they're so slimy and grotesque and dripping with ectoplasm and that spooky music and you see the hand come for the apple which was the cover of the book that I had
3: I was scared as a nine year old And me too. I want to say, at this point in the movie, watching that viewing, I'm still getting it. Keep in mind, I thought I knew the story. I was waiting for this. These cocoons look like alien eggs, or as they make explicit reference to by showing a movie clip on TV, the pods from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Nothing good is going to come out of those cocoons. I don't know why the scientist is grinning and waving a Snickers bar, because it's very clear he's in a very scary horror
2: movie this isn't a gory scary horror movie but I think even as an adult you might get a few jumps when hands pop out or gremlins jump out of cabinets you know it's nothing like Halloween or any of those slasher films but I think you can have some fun jumps here
3: oh yeah definitely and yeah this middle section was in my initial viewing the most satisfying in the entire movie because it is it's the moment before they sort of let the gremlins be silly and we're just still not sure about what we're going to get but we know that they kill but
1: as an adult I look at this and I realize they're just really ripping off alien from the eggs being a lot like the alien eggs to even having the teacher get attacked with a film strip running, recreating somewhat the strobe effect from when Ripley's fighting the alien. I'm now seeing this for what it is, and it's a big takeoff of Ridley Scott.
3: Yeah, he's a fan of it. I mean, they put an alien poster in Poltergeist. Spielberg admires that movie, and the influence is obvious and welcome. I would say that if you wanted to bring more alien influence to this, I would have loved that. But that kind of ends with this scene here. I mean, it really is just one death here. Well, yeah, but it also isn't it kind of alien
1: in that when we did our alien bonus retrospective series, we talked about how we learned the life cycle of the alien, right? We started with the egg, got the face hugger, then got the baby and then this here. It's a story being told much the same way. It just the alien doesn't end up going to see Snow White. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Nothing burst out of anybody's chest. I think it's less graphic, for sure. But yeah, he does get a hypo in the ass. I think that that means something. I had to laugh. I mean, he's sitting there laughing, saying, hey, you remember me? I'm like, yeah, the guy that took blood from him? Yeah, he's going to remember you. I knew that hypo was coming.
2: And the scene was originally the teacher with hypodermic needles all over his face. Again, much more graphic, much more Mm. violent, Till they toned it down a little bit.
1: I remember really being scared with that, and I will stand by that that is a suspenseful scene. The way Dante films it, I mean, he has a horror background. This is the scene in the school where it's most evident, followed up by the mother being attacked right after it in the house by
2: five of these little beasts. My favorite scene. Talk about not caring about Billy, who's supposed to be your protagonist. It's going to be the mom who's the big hero who gets the big action scene here.
3: Yeah, it's the best scene in the movie still. It was at the time and for me even now. Fifty minutes in, we finally get our good look of a gremlin. I mean, we saw him kind of flash. He kind of popped out of the nurse's station for a half second. But we don't really see the gremlins until mom is coming down to do you hear what I hear, Nat King Cole record, and they're sitting there in the kitchen eating his gingerbread men. This is really well set up. The childhood self and me really enjoying the gruesomeness by which she's going to reclaim her kitchen. I was surprised she was so tough. I
1: did not remember that she succeeds in killing, what, four of the gremlins? There was only one left by the time Mom's done. You barely need Billy. Right,
3: exactly. She can handle it. And if this is also payout for a lot of not great physical humor with all of the bad gadgets and inventions that have been lying around the house. We've seen that juicer joke before. It's much funnier when a gremlin's going into
2: it. And I do see this with... The mom here. Earlier in the film, she looks just very depressed. You know, her husband's gone. They're obviously financially struggling. I almost see this as some excitement in her life. It's the one time, you know, this knife is going to work. It's not going to be like that juicer or coffee maker. It's almost like she gets a thrill from this and actually feels like she's accomplishing something.
1: It is the stabbing death that the mother does that shocks me the most. She could throw him in the microwave. She could throw him in the fireplace. But when she goes Michael Myers on the Gremlin, I'm
2: like, whoa.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, and then she goes and pulls a knife out, starts to go to the living room, and walks back to pull another knife out. She loves her cutlery. (laughs) I like that she's got the TV
3: tray as a shield, too. I mean, they're throwing (laughs) stuff at her. She's got it under control. I agree. I want her to take care of the rest of this movie. Billy and Phoebe Cates can sit down, and they can go to the neighbor's house. This is the one I want to (laughs) see save the day.
1: Although I did do some research, because... My entire life, from age 9 to 39, I believed if you put a living creature in a microwave, it would explode. And that's because of this movie. If you asked me the day before we recorded, if you put a cat in a microwave, will it go pop? I would say yes and envision a gremlin. So you researched that before this podcast. I did. I did indeed.
3: (laughs) Is that internet searches or lab studies? Did you have to do a lot of cleanup or clicking? I am not a high school
1: science teacher, so I just wiki'd it. (laughs) (laughs) They will not explode. They will die of burns. Maybe a gremlin would, because I don't know the body moisture of a gremlin. No living creature on Earth would explode. There's too much water.
3: Okay. Well, see, they don't have water. They don't like water. So, maybe that's exactly what happened. I think this is factually, scientifically very accurate. It's worth pointing out, the microwave was relatively new to everyone's home in 1984. I think we had only had one for a year. There was a certain amount of mystery to them. Just another themselves what could they do oh their radiation is this like a nuclear bomb you know
2: yeah i remember my mom telling me to step back when i was going to make my instant oatmeal
1: i remember being told not to stand in front of it and wait for it to finish cooking or i'd get cancer
3: I still might. I don't know that that's wrong. I agree. I was about to say, I still advise you to do that, because we do not know. They have not uh, conclusively proven or disproven that urban myth. But yes, all these things were sort of floating around this new device that was coming into everyone's home. Like the VCR, it was just sort of arriving, and this was probably the first movie to really well utilize a microwave. I absolutely loved it then and now.
2: And we got to say, that this microwave scene, parents pulled their children out of the theater... because of this, They were not expecting this kind of gruesomeness in a PG film.
3: Yeah, I guess. It's what I wanted, but I can see that, yes, it's not E.T. E.T. never made anybody blow up. So this was it. This is why we have a PG-13. This and the Temple guy from Indiana Jones 2 ripping out the heart are the reason why they invented PG-13. I
1: remember that, and I remember being very into the discussions because 84 got me into cinema. I remember being 12 years old when PG-13 was instituted, going to see just one of the guys, the ticket booth guy, going, are you 13? I go, A, I'm too young for an ID, and B, it's not a law, (laughs) it's a suggestion. Give me the ticket.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was just mad about that rule because it meant I couldn't see the movies I wanted to see until I was older. My parents wouldn't let me go see them.
1: But we've talked on now playing about how PG movies had titty shots in the 70s and early 80s now that would go to pg-13 and hell these days are but yeah this is a exceptionally violent pg even though they claim gremlins and indiana jones those are the two they hold up but there are pg movies we've looked at here on now play that we're like damn that's pg i mean again poltergeist
3: yeah, it's him. It is the fact that people go see in mass a Spielberg movie, the reason why that it became an issue. Sure, other PG movies did it, but they probably looked like they were made for adults. They wouldn't have been tempting to a 12, 10 year old. But these movies were 6, 7 year olds were going to see this, and yeah, they needed to come up with another way of warning. You know, at the time, it seemed like, yeah, that they were branding movies I wanted to see as forbidden, and it made me upset. Now, it's probably a good thing that they did invent that rating i think it is helpful to see the difference i don't know how many times i do see a pg movie quite honestly i feel like most movies that come out of hollywood are pg-13 and are that i consume
1: i only pay attention to MPAA ratings after turning 18 when it's a horror movie because if i see a pg-13 horror movie i basically am in the theater that the gremlins go to But before that, I mean, Billy does have to rise to the rank of hero. Yes, he does shuttle the mom
2: off to the neighbors. He does decapitate a gremlin. I do love that shot of that gremlin's head in the fireplace as he cuts it off.
1: Does he decapitate it? I know it's a sword, but I thought he like batted it all into the fire.
2: No, no, no. You see the body fall and just the head is sitting there on the logs.
3: Yeah, it's satisfying. Again, this whole scene, it's what I wanted as a kid. It still stands up as being the best part of this movie. I'm curious to know. I know it's not going to remain in this tone for the rest of the movie, but I am curious to know, could they have kept this level of intensity for the rest of the movie. Is it wrong that this movie ultimately becomes a Muppet movie rather than a monster movie? I think they definitely could have kept this tone. I mean, this tone has been achieved and
1: once Stripe jumps into the swimming pool, you could have made this exponential, but the change in tone that occurs is very strange. I mean, I watched this. I don't understand why it went so dark and so intense and then became this really broad comedy where, yeah, you've got gremlins doing flashing and gremlins putting on lipstick and gremlins playing cards. I mean, yeah, like dogs playing poker, gremlins playing poker. I, in one hand, think it's genius that a movie can encapsulate so much and do it well, because I'm laughing at the funny parts. I'm feeling the suspense in the horror parts by the same token. It almost feels like a movie out of control where the director does not have a good handle on the tone.
2: Oh, I think this is the tone Dante was going for. I mean, the howling was kind of a spoof. Piranha It was a spoof of Jaws. I think this is right up his alley going with kind of this satire. It just veers off and goes in a different direction.
3: I agree. I don't feel like it's implemented by the studio. I think it's Dante's natural inclination. I think he was one of the people that helped founded the 80s horror comedy. I think they could have kept it a more low-budget horror movie. I think by hiring him, you're going to get this. But I just want to say that I think even though I may prefer it, I'm fine with the new tone. I know it's coming. I know it's going to be Muppets. What's strange to me about the second half now as an adult is not that it goes in this direction, but that it drops so many balls that it was juggling, that there are so many characters that quickly disappear, that Corey Feldman has one shot using a slingshot and we never see him again, that Judge Reinhold, we never see him again, that there's townspeople that we got to know that you said they set up really well Arnie. Yeah, I liked them too. Where are they in the second half of this
1: movie? Well, most are killed. I mean, even the Futterman's, I know he comes back in the sequel, but he dead. No, 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 listen.
2: At the very
1: end, you listen to the radio broadcast. They're interviewing the Futterman's. I don't care. In that scene, they're dead. You see them trapped in a corner. You see the gremlins jerk in response to impact. I don't care that they pulled the Halloween
3: H2O trick of at the very end. I'm still alive. They're dead. Well, maybe, but yeah, I agree. In the book, they were killed. I just want to say that's the one thing I remember about reading that book was it was very explicitly a murder. I think they walked up and found the bodies, So it was, again, a reason why after reading the book, I was prepared for something much more graphic than this was. They leave things open here, like Deagle, she's probably dead. We don't see her moving when she shoots out the window, but it's such a funny slapsticky death that she could have just as easily been knocked out and woken up and been okay.
2: They hedged their bets. We do see only a couple scenes where the town's really in mayhem and people are running around, buildings on fire, cars on fire. I think it really was a limitation of the budget. I mean, they, the behind the scenes stuff, they talk about what a nightmare all these puppets and animatronics were and just constantly breaking down. I mean, Dante and Fennell, the producer, they had to take a break from film after this one. They didn't ever want to come back to it because just dealing with all these little monsters was so tough. I think, you know, if this was today in CGI, we would have seen this full town and chaos and bodies in the street.
3: You know, and to the technical points, I would say that stuff holds up pretty well. I mean, it's as good as any Muppet movie that I can think of. I mean, I think that they did a really good job with the creature design. I think the creature design of the Gremlin says horror and that they were able to get laughs out of it. It's due to the costuming and the way that they were able to put leg warmers and flasher overcoats and stuff on these characters. But yes, the puppetry, the special effects, I think, hold up for this movie if you're willing to give it a pass and accept that this is pre-CGI stuff. There's one effect shot where they, I think they do stop motion and they're storming a street that I think looks pretty bad. Probably should have been removed. Yes. But other than that one shot, I feel like, yeah, no beef with this movie on a technical level. I think it looks... Pretty darn good for 1984. I'll agree.
1: I think you nailed it, though, with Muppet. I mean, at no point do you believe any of these creatures are real the way I did when I was nine. When I was nine, I was completely taken into this world, and Mogwai, I had no idea that it was being puppeted, and the Gremlins, I didn't know how they were doing it. Now, yeah, the Gremlins look a little bit rubbery, and I can see the seams on Gizmo, but it does hold up, and I... I think that's a credit to the actors and how they interact with these things, but great puppetry going on here and the way it's being done. Only a few shots, including the one you mentioned, and at the end when Gizmo opens the shade and you can just tell they threw a teddy bear at the ceiling.
2: They loved that shot because it was so easy. They didn't have to worry about a little puppet breaking <laughs> down with gears in it. There are so many great tricks. I mean, if if you just enjoy movies because of the magic, the illusion they're creating. They do that so well here. You know, there's straight shots, there's no cuts. There's certain scenes where Billy is holding a puppet Gizmo that's standing and then sets it down on a counter and as the camera pans down, Gizmo's sitting there moving around because they just had another animatronic one sitting there already and he just handed that one off to someone off screen i mean there are some great shots this practical effects where they had to come up with this creativity they really pulled it off especially for 1984
1: and i am impressed with the number of gremlins they get when you get to that bar scene there are so many gremlins out there and they all look distinct and i mean i know the tricks i know how they did some of it but it is visually impressive as all hell i gotta go back to the rules for a question though the gremlins are doing like beer bongs does beer not count as water it's gotta be straight water (laughs) yeah so does it have to be distilled i mean if it's tap water is there enough impurity (laughs) he jumped in a swimming pool that's pretty high in chlorine it's not that far removed from a soda i wouldn't think
3: I don't know. I'd much rather drink a soda than the YMCA pool, but uh <laughs>
1: You're right. There's probably more piss in that pool than chlorine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's obvious that they don't follow all these rules. doesn't really matter at this point. I mean, this is all about the chaos that these gremlins bring upon this town. They've gone through the murder. and, And I love that talking about the West perverting cultures. Here are these gremlins. They're perverting this culture. They've gone through the colonization part. They've killed the settlers. And now they're establishing their own chaotic culture.
3: Yeah, the important thing is that this has been brought on to them because they didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. I mean, really, they should have never had the pet, and then they didn't take good enough care of it. It's really Corey Feldman's fault that we don't see him die, because he was the one that spilled the water to begin with. He doesn't die, and maybe he should have gotten a very violent one, but they weren't going to do that.
1: Um, They possibly should have. I mean, it is his fault that they reproduce. The evil Mogwai did cut the clock cord i mean how careful did billy need to be did he need doc brown's wall from back to the future (laughs) with all the clocks to make sure it's not midnight but i think the taking of the mogwai is a good portion of that which is why i went monkey's paw but that bar scene's another scene that always felt weird to me because again you've taken gizmo and billy and most of the main characters out of it at this point i forget kate is in the movie
3: Yeah. And I never understand why she's working at the bar and the bank. There's something about that Mrs. Deagle is trying to close this landmark tavern, and so she's going to work for free as soon as she's done with her day shift and serve drinks. Whatever. This is all very muddled. Maybe she just doesn't want to think about
1: Christmas. Maybe she just (laughs) wants to work 24 hours a day so she can ignore this horrible, horrible holiday.
3: Yeah, or at least take some bottles home. I do think that there is an angle that she has that she is not sharing with the family-friendly audience here. I'm not sure what it is, but you're right. This is about the time where we learn what is in her past that is so horrible and, and that this is just another reason to hate Christmas.
1: I'm gonna go right out there. At nine years old, I thought this scene was completely heart-wrenching. Your dad dies trying to be Santa? That's how you find out there is no Santa? It's because he's climbing down the chimney and breaks his neck and then he smells up your living room? I didn't realize how ludicrous the story was until my teenage years.
2: You actually fell right into Joe Dante's hands. He wanted to create this scene that was so absurd that If you heard it in person, if you had a friend telling you this, how would you empathize with that? How would you react to that in real life as opposed to seeing it on the screen? He wanted that feeling like, do I take this serious or not? And what if someone really was telling me this? But this scene, the studios hated this scene. After the previewing of the movie, they're like, perfect movie. We just got to cut that one monologue out from Kate and it's done. Everyone wanted this out. The whole crew, they're like, they're never going to let you keep that scene in there. Dante went to Spielberg, and he's like, everyone wants me to take this scene out. What do you think? And he's like, I don't like it, but it's your movie. If you want to keep it, keep it. The crew was right.
1: This has become one of my go-to touchstones for the run of now playing. Whenever a character has this false note of drama in the middle of an action scene, when we're going to just screech the action to a halt so a character can have some kind of emotional revelation and it doesn't work because of poor acting... This is what I always think of. This is so ludicrous. As an adult, I realize just how dumb this whole thing is.
2: Isn't that the point, though? You're you're taking this serious that if a good actor had these lines, they'd be able to pull off this scene? No.
3: No earnest reading of this, however genuine the actor is in the part is going to make me not mock someone stupid enough to try and climb down a chimney holding a bunch of gifts i mean don't you just get what you deserve i mean that is so damn dumb there's a whole site devoted to this right now it's called the darwin awards yes exactly (laughs) and this would be a leading candidate it's really hard for us to emotionally feel for this girl who lost her father a very empathetic situation because the scenario that she paints is so laughably dumb and i know they wanted to work death into this i mean it's very clear in this watching of the movie that i see all of the it's a wonderful life which had that really dark george bailey is going to jump off the bridge kind of moment they wanted to do something like this here he was insistent on getting something as dark here it just isn't they thought they had it it isn't
2: I don't think they were going for dark they knew this was a joke they knew this was funny it is it dark humor yes no 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 from what
1: you told me he knew. Dante knew.
2: <laughs> One man. Come on. How can you not see this whole monologue as a joke? I see this and I'm laughing. There's nothing serious I'm getting from this.
3: I think VB Cates is very genuine. I don't think she saw comedy potential in this. In fact, I don't think that she saw any moment in this as a chance to be light or funny or subversive in any way. I think she is very sincere in her grief, and I think that it's just weird, particularly at this point, when a town is overrun with monster. And we really want to know what's happening with Corey Feldman. What's happening with the guy at the mailbox. Did Mrs. Deagle ever get up? All of these other things to stop and have to focus on this is just the wrong impulse. It is. It really breaks
1: the flow of this movie. And worse, I think this scene single-handedly killed Phoebe Kate's career. <laughs> I think that after Fast Times, she could have become a Jamie Gertz. I know that's not a high bar to set. <laughs> dare to dream dream a little dream (laughs) she might have even been an ally sheedy for a while but because of this one scene i think she became a hollywood pariah because they all blame her for dante's mistake i think every single member of the cast who said cut this was looking out for phoebe's best interests (laughs)
3: It is just startlingly wrong
2: for so many reasons. And
3: so who, again, just to put a button on this, who was the person that said it must stay?
2: Dante. He was the only one that was fighting for it, and Spielberg gave him his blessing. Spielberg didn't even like it, but he said, if you want to keep it, you keep it. I
1: guess Spielberg learned a little hands-off approach since Poltergeist.
2: But because this scene stayed, another scene was cut with Judge Reinhold, where we find out what happens to him and the bank manager. You know, this whole scene takes place in the bank, and there's a deleted scene where we see the bank manager. He's dead. He's been, like, smashed with clocks, because there's this whole backstory about him being punctual, and Judge reinhold his character has locked himself in the safe and won't come out and has gone mad
1: this scene always weirded me out because of reinhold's performance i mean you go from one bad phoebe case performance to now a bad judge reinhold performance but he's in there i don't understand why he went mad i again i saw this integrated with the film on tv and i think there's a scene missing where the gremlins attacked and judge reinhold snapped
3: yeah, I felt like he might have gotten a violent death or or something. I'd written a story in my head. It makes sense that if the character was saying, you need to be strong, that he turns into a coward and hides. That's a good end. I'll go with that. I wanted to know what happened to him, whatever they came up with. I wanted to see a corpse or a coward. I wanted to see something. I mean, I felt like there were many characters that I wanted to know what happened to them. He was one of them, and they just drop him here. Ironically, the one character that I never had any curiosity about, they keep cutting back to. But every now and then when they want to break up the action, we get Hoyt Axton and Robbie the Robot at the convention.
1: I love that convention. I'm looking for all the different things. There's Robbie the Robot, quite obviously. I also noticed H.G. Wells' time machines in the
2: back, and it disappears.
3: Oh, how funny. I didn't see that.
2: And did you notice Spielberg? He rides across on a bicycle.
3: I did not no, see that. Really? Yeah, that's great. I'll have to watch those again. See, I just wasn't getting a lot out of the Rand Peltzer thing. I'll be honest, that joke about I make bad gadgets that squirt on me and all of that, I really groaned every time as an adult. I might have laughed as a kid, but as an adult, this stuff was toxic. I wanted every scene with him cut. I wanted this character cut. The only good that he did was bring him to Mogwai.
1: I'm telling you, he feels like he's in a different movie to me. And Mm -hmm. it's because he never really integrates with the actors on the screen. It's so freaking weird. He's always on the phone. He's always away. I do think he's a horrible father. And, (laughs) yeah, I kind of like his jokes here but they're also so weird when he stops at the gas station with the smokeless ashtray. Mm, yeah. I think they actually made that too in the late
2: 80s. And again, that scenes in there just because you know, Dante I've liked a lot of his impulses in this movie Stuart, you keep saying he keeps throwing back to older movies. This is one, this scene at the gas station. I guess that gas station attendant is some old, well-known actor if you're into old, old movies. And so he kept it in there because he just liked how he would improvise these weird faces as Mr. Peltzer talked about his smokeless ashtray. There is some indulgences in here.
3: Definitely. And again, I don't think these scenes are very funny. And again, I ask okay, so the dad is trying to get home. He might as well not bother because when he finally gets back to town, he doesn't save the day. This isn't a story about Rand Peltzer making good on bringing home a Magwai he never should have. It is not his story at all. By the time he gets there, the kids have handled it on their own. They figured out that all the gremlins are watching the movies.
1: That is also something that I found very strange. I mean, I could get them gathering at the bar, but when this becomes a whole bunch of gremlins going hi-ho, hi-ho... Wow. Even as a kid, I realized this movie took a turn for something
2: that was too young for me at nine. Wasn't Disney really struggling in the early 80s? Come on, there's no way they let a classic get treated like this nowadays.
3: Absolutely. I was thinking that very thing because, yeah, who put out this movie? Warner Brothers. They do Looney Tunes. They do The Competitor. They are not involved with Walt Disney Productions.
1: I was wondering how that licensing even worked. I mean, why wasn't that a Bugs Bunny cartoon? Why would they pay Disney for that? That is, as somebody who follows studio licensing and synergy, how they even got that? I I honestly thought it might be copyright free because of the copyright laws pre-Sunny Bono.
2: No, 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 come on, Disney. (laughs) Disney would never let that happen. But yes, okay, the joke is for little kids that they're singing hi-ho, hi-ho. But to me, again, there's this skewering of Western civilization what is more Western than Disney? What is more American than Disney? And who is the audience? Just these ugly little creatures rocking out to it. I think there is kind of a perverse joy to that. I get that there's the obvious humor that skews to kids, but I like the commentary that's going on.
3: And I do think you're right. Disney really was in a slump. They, were very far removed from all of their classics to come
2: yeah i've never revisited the black cauldron
3: little mermaid was five years away and yeah i think black cauldron was coming out around this time it was the low point disney would have paid you handsomely to show one of their films i mean i think that any promotion would have been good promotion to them in 1984 But yes, you know what? I think you nailed something, Arnie. I was embarrassed. There was a time in your maturation where you wanted to separate yourself from kiddie things. I'm not a kid anymore. I like grown-up things. And I had entered that. I liked horror movies. I didn't want Walt Disney horror movies. And this was the point where I really had just shut off From the movie experience. Because they wanted to make a silly movie. Where kids were laughing at the monsters. It was just not what I wanted. Here you know. I'm going with it more. I won't say this stuff is uproarious. It is still very much for a audience member. Who is in the single digits of their age. It's not the worst. It's not the nightmare scenario. That I recalled it to be.
1: I'll agree with that. But I'll say that they're on a declining slope. I'm glad that they blow up the gremlins in that theater because when you get the flash dance gremlin in the bar i'm like you're getting a little too poppy you're getting a little too referency. i mean nowadays i'd consider these to be epic movie scary movie level jokes so when you get down to yes you're right when i was nine i was embarrassed to be watching a movie that's watching a movie of snow white And so I'm glad that they didn't have a chance to take the gremlins to the next step of infantilism.
3: Right. Whatever my issues were at the time, they're not present now, but I do recognize that this movie best serves a very young audience after not serving them very well for the middle portion. It is a strangely disjointed tone they have here. It's two-thirds a kid's movie and one-third a teenage horror movie.
1: But then we end again kind of in teenage horror movie mode because I think the movie gets intense in that department store.
3: I'd agree with you if Gizmo didn't end up in a Barbie car, but...
1: Before the Barbie car, when Gizmo's off screen, and Stripe, here's that E.T. gag, he's hiding among the stuffed animals, one of which is E.T., the way E.T. hid with the stuffed animals in E.T., and he's showing up on all those TVs, and he's throwing frickin' saw blades. He's out for blood.
3: And they show blood. Blood on Zach Galligan's temple. I thought that was impressive. I'm sure there was concern about actually showing red on his face.
2: I do have to ask, when Stripe shows up with that chainsaw... Dante says that's an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Did they copy a shot at all with Stripe in that chainsaw? Or was it just the fact that he had a chainsaw? I think it's just that he had a chainsaw.
3: Yeah, I can't think of anything that they did beyond the obvious. I mean, in 1984, probably the only chainsaw reference people would have had in the movies would have been Toby Hooper's movie. And Toby Hooper had just worked with Spielberg with Poltergeist. So, yeah, I think it was fresh on people's minds. But you're right, this is a fairly exciting action scene. If I wanted Zach Gallagher to live, I'd be even more invested. <laughs> but yeah, he gets a crossbow in the arm, there's chainsaw versus bat. It's pretty exciting. I mean, I'm questioning who has the upper hand, because it seems like
1: Stripe's on the run, but he's on the run kind of the way Rambo was on the run. He's just leading you to the next
2: trap. Yeah, he actually gets a gun. He finds the arms- department in montgomery wards i I guess that was a common thing maybe back in the 80s you could buy a handgun (laughs) at your local department store they had one at my montgomery wards (laughs)
3: we're not casual about it now with kids and guns you know et had a similar thing with people with guns pointing at kids and here we've had it a couple times there was a gremlin with a ski mask on that shot at phoebe cates i mean yeah the gun was just it's used very casual here and it's kind of surprising now to come back to it and think wow they put this in a kids movie but really you were talking about how the
1: father does nothing like father like son (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because, really, this whole fight and Billy being put in danger, does Billy do anything that helps stop the Gremlins? In fact, if anything, they help the Gremlins because Kate is in the office flipping switches, which turns on the fountain that provides more water for Stripe.
3: Yeah, at least Zach Galligan gets a fight in. Phoebe Cates makes things worse. I gotta say... I'm very aware now how much better and tougher they write female characters even in family films and stuff like this. I mean, Phoebe Cates literally is just standing around waiting to be rescued. She has almost no role here, much like the mom after her one action scene. The women just, they're sort of very passive characters here. Everything is given to, yeah, the boy and the pet. I mean, Gizmo's got to get something in here. There's got to be something that he's got to do To save the day. And they've set this up with him watching racing movies. That he's going to come racing in at the end. I think it was more or less the right impulse.
2: And if you notice the shades. There's two shades there. Gizmo only opens one. Billy opened the other one, but they cut it out because they wanted to make Gizmo the hero. They realized that's where the money is. That's the toys that no one's going to buy a Billy toy.
3: No, I never had one. That is true. (laughs) I only had Giz and Gremlins.
1: I'll say that as a nine-year-old, though, when Gizmo came racing in in Barbie's Corvette... I was cheering. I thought that was kick-ass that he was in a Corvette, the ultimate car of the 80s, and that he saved the day. I see now that I wish Billy had a purpose, but it was no doubt crowd-pleasing to end it the way it did.
3: I was more into the melting death. I love the melting. Another reason you know you're watching Spielberg is he just had to end a movie this way or had to work this into one of his films. Raiders, the Nazis, obviously, most famous example, plus in Poltergeist, tearing off the parapsychologist's face in the mirror. You got to get that one gruesome thing that makes everyone look away. And here it is. It's almost a vampire's death. The sunlight comes in and he just keeps melting and melting and melting
2: he falls into the water, and you get that one last scare of the skeleton jumping out, and then, I just love the way that skeleton deflates. There's something just so airy about it.
3: Yeah, and the dog's reaction is pretty priceless, too. It's genuine. It's truly unnerved.
2: Oh, no, no, it really is. They said the dog thought these puppets were real, and that's why you got so many great reactions from him.
3: <laughs> I had forgotten what happened to him, but he had gone off with Hoyd Axton, and they both just sort of walk in here at the end moment to go, oh, okay, let's go home.
1: Yeah, Jacob, you said they killed the dog. It's almost like they didn't know what to do with the dog if they weren't going to kill him so they sent him to the convention even though we never saw him i guess he was left in the car
3: great dad great pet owner maybe he's trying to protect him from deagle there was some implication that she was going to catch him and kill him so maybe it was the responsible thing but like so many characters here they're reduced to cameo in the background at the end
1: were you guys sad that after all this billy didn't get to keep gizmo i know
3: i was when i was nine
2: no, he shouldn't have that thing. Even at seven, I realize that dude's irresponsible.
3: Yeah, this is the lesson. I mean, we've come to expect in our cartoons for there to be a heavy underlying of what went wrong. There's a reason why all of this bad thing happened. And it's because you do to Mogwai what society has done to nature's gifts. I mean, it's boldly underlined here with Mr. Miyagi coming in here.
1: You really think that's it? I always took this as the E.T. ending. Like, if he stayed there, there'd be more stories. And so this, bye, Billy, is
3: just be
1: good.
3: Oh, but if only it were good. This does not get any emotional reaction out of me. Who cares? Plus, he promises that he can get him back one day. It felt like he was grounded. Honestly, it just felt (laughs) like, all right, Billy's got to wait a couple more years and then he can go back to Chinatown and get it. If he promises, to, you know,
2: no TV for a week. That's what this is.
1: So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Remlins? Jacob.
2: I realized, like, if I was seven again, I'd be all up into this because of Gizmo and he's cute and he's fighting these creepy reptilian monsters and i don't really care at seven you know about character arcs and all that who cares what happens to judge reinhold who is he anyway and billy bland whatever i want gizmo i want to see him riding around in that barbie corvette you know i watch this now and this is a movie i go back and back to i watch it because i enjoy the satire i enjoy the joke i enjoy we are going to do this perverted et film where the cute alien becomes these devastating monsters. We're going to mock Disney. We're going to mock. Western society by these ugly goblins break dancing and dressing up like Ray Charles. And I enjoy this as the joke, as the satire. I also think that middle part, like you said, Stuart, that I think that is the best part of this film, that scene with the mom where you don't get any Kate or Billy, the main characters. You get Billy's mom taking on those gremlins. I think that's some great entertaining fun and some effective horror. But you know what? No, if you want scares, this is the film for you. No. Yeah, I could see how this could be labeled as a kid's film, but I think there's more going on here. I enjoy the jokes that are being told. Not the overt jokes, the gremlin singing hi-ho, but what Dante's doing with the film, the in-jokes that he's putting in there. I, I think this is a great piece of satire of Western civilization. And, yeah, I recommend Gremlins. I give this a strong recommend. It looks a little aged. It doesn't work quite as well as when you're young, but I think it's considered an 80s classic for a reason. Strong recommend. Stuart.
3: Well, I do think of this as a kid's movie, and I don't have kids. But if I did, I would show this to them at an early age. I think that this movie works. It's a nice bridge. If you're in between Muppets and Chucky, a series we've returned to lately, I think that this is an acceptable middle ground here, or at least better than Garbage Pail Kids movie. I mean, I think that this works to straddle the difference between early age, infantile, educational television, and yeah, more hardcore horror. I think this works in that way. It's a really edgy Muppet movie, and technically, I think the movie still plays. I think kids today won't turn their nose up to the special effects, and there aren't too many dated references here. I think it will still play for a family audience. I don't know that it totally works for me. I'm kind of blase about it, but I think my recommend, my mild recommend is based on the idea that I definitely, if I had kids, I'd show it to them. And if, They didn't like it because it was too scary. I'd question if I were raising them right, because it shouldn't be. They should be able to handle this. This is a good family horror film, and so mild recommend.
1: Yeah, you kind of are Scroogey, aren't you? I would agree with the bridge concept, although I would almost think if you're looking for a bridge, you'd start the kids comforted with the hi-ho, hi-ho, and end with some horror that they'd graduate into. Here is the reverse. You throw them in the deep end and then slowly bring them back to the shallow end. I'm going to give this a strong recommend, though. I recognize that this film has some flaws. I don't think that the joke of Phoebe Kate's speech plays as funny. You say, Jacob, it's intentional humor. It doesn't play that way. It just didn't work. And I think that when the pop culture references go a little bit more crazy... The film just feels less smart, it feels less engrossing, it feels less suspenseful, it's a movie of uneven tone. But that said, and it may be because I've lived with this film for 30 years, watching it again was like slipping on a comfortable old coat. I mean, I just loved every scene even the santa claus dead in the chimney scene i was still enjoying because of my memories of that scene i had a great great time returning to this and yeah i also think the effects hold up and that audiences today you may not enjoy it as much as i do but i think you'll enjoy it i definitely give this a strong recommend. I can't believe I still like it as much as I do.
3: And this is an improvement. Keep in mind, my memories from childhood were poisonous, so that I'm giving it a mild recommend. Shows that I've come around a long way. It shows that this movie does work and does play. Yeah, go check it out. It ain't no E.T., though.
2: Thank God. Or
3: Poltergeist. But we got one more week in 2013, and I think we should ring in the new year with a new batch. Gentlemen, shall we do it next week? Yes, Gremlins
1: 2 next week. In the meantime, you also only have one more week to hear the Child's Play series. It is a donation series, so as Gizmo says, Moolah! But it is only available for one more week before it goes back in the vault. So you can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com.
3: Would make a wonderful holiday gift. You could stuff it in the stocking. It'll fit. I promise. So Jacob Stewart,
1: thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Until next time, let's get out of here. This place smells like burnt meatloaf.
0: Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Thank you for joining us for Now Playing's Gremlins Retrospective Series. He's like a lot of people around here. I just want somebody to listen, especially around the holidays. Be sure to visit us at nowplayingpodcast.com each week for a new movie review podcast. Check it out one time, won't you? Your support helps keep Now Playing on the air. I'll give you $200. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: We need the money. Now come on, you want it or not? long isn't it
0: now playing is edited by Heath and arnie
1: well everybody else is opening up their presence they're opening up their wrists
0: now playing credit narration by brock get him off the caffeine he's okay right. the gremlins films are the property of warner brothers and no infringement is intended now playing is not affiliated with warner brothers or any other creative entity involved with these films we just show these movies, madam. We don't make them. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media, Incorporated. A man can always agree with others. It is more difficult to agree with oneself. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2013. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media, Incorporated. Because of the end of civilization,
3: the Clamp Cable Network now leaves the air. We hope you have enjoyed our programming, but more importantly, we hope you have enjoyed
0: life.
1: I've seen almost every movie he's ever done. Looney Tunes back in action? Yep. Oh, that was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Hey,
2: you're not the only one with nieces and nephews. Fortune cookies. You can't get them in China. It's an American invention.
1: I know that thanks to Iron Man 3. (laughs) matinee for some reason in my notes I wrote manatee I'm like I haven't seen a movie (laughs) called manatee (laughs) (laughs) what's funny is when I was nine and seeing this I just thought there was some movie stereotype about mean nasty redheaded old ladies because I'd seen Annie a few years before and I see this to me it's all the same character just mean old redheaded dyed ladies
2: was Miss Hannigan a redhead I know Annie was
3: Yeah, I agree. I think you might be confused on her hair color, but who cares? No one's going back to Annie.
2: I have fond memories of that film as a kid. (laughs) Till the remake in our retrospective. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll review that tomorrow. Not my proudest movie reference on Now Playing, Drop Dead Fred.
2: (laughs) Oh, pray we never have to revisit that one. (laughs)
3: let's try and find it i think that dropped dead. i think it took its own advice
1: it would beat man thing as the worst movie we've ever reviewed uh, I don't that's know how about i remember
2: that. it
3: but uh you know what i choose to just accept your word on it
2: if you just gotta see your gizmo you might think it's going a little slow if i have to see my gizmo that could lead to felony charges <laughs>
1: that they pulled the Halloween H2O trick
3: of at the very end, I'm still alive! (laughs) (laughs) Is that what Halloween H2O is famous for? LL Cool J (laughs) coming back? Yes, I think that is.
1: (laughs) To hear the Child's Play series. It is a Donetian. (laughs)
2: Donetian. Donetian. Yum, yum.
0: Still lurking about? Don't you people have homes?